0: scripture reading tonight is from Isaiah chapter 50. Looking these four Advent weeks at the theme of the servant in the book of Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before Christ came, we began last week in chapter 49. And looking at chapter 50 tonight, let us give attention to God's holy word. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce? With which I sent her away, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem, or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dried up the sea. I make the rivers a desert, their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Teddy Roosevelt was a man who knew what it was to be weary One of the most famous incidents of his early life, before he became president, was an episode during his stay out west in what is now North and South Dakota, when he and two associates, Seward and Dow, pursued three thieves. And it turned out to be an 11-day journey in late winter of 1886, when he and the two fellows with him uh, pulled down the Little Missouri River, pursuing these thieves. Finally, they caught up to them, caught them unawares, captured them, retrieved the stolen items from them, and then went on their way. But the problem they faced was how to get to civilization at this point. The Little Missouri was very clogged still at this point in late March with ice jams, ice flows. And so they, they pulled their way and went their way down the little Missouri as far as they could go. And finally, they got to a place that they could cut cross country, heading for this little town of Dickinson, North Dakota. And Roosevelt sent his two associates off in another direction to take care of part of what they had to do. And he, had, uh, he rented a wagon of sorts to finish the 45 mile trek. The problem is there wasn't enough room for them and it wasn't wise for him to ride with them because he had to keep an eye on these thieves the whole time. And so uh, the farmer drove the wagon. Roosevelt walked the final 45 miles of what had already become a legendary expedition. For 36 hours, he didn't sleep. And so he finally straggles into this little town of Dickinson and he takes the uh, arrested thieves as a deputy sheriff to the sheriff's office and turns them in in town and then is walking down the main street in town when he bumps into someone who turns out to be the only doctor in town. He just happens to see him. And Dr. Victor Strickney of Dickinson was just going home to lunch when he met Roosevelt limping out of the sheriff's office. And this is what he records about this event. This stranger struck me as the queerest specimen of strangeness That had descended on Dickinson in the three years I had lived there. He was all teeth and eyes. His clothes were in rags from forcing his way through the rose bushes that covered the river bottoms. He was scratched, bruised, and hungry, but gritty and determined as a bulldog. I remember he gave me the impression of being heavy and rather large. As I approached him, he stopped me with a gesture, asking me whether I could direct him to a doctor's office. I was struck by the way he bit off his words and showed his teeth. I told him I was the only practicing physician, not only in Dickinson, but in the whole surrounding country. By George, he said emphatically, then you're exactly the man I want to see. My feet are blistered so badly that I can hardly walk. I want you to fix me up. I took him to my office, and while I was bathing and bandaging his feet, which were in pretty bad shape, he told me the story of his capture of the three thieves. We talked of many things that day. He impressed me and puzzled me. And when I went home to lunch an hour later, I told my wife that I had met the most peculiar and at the same time the most wonderful man I ever came to know. Well, that's the story of a very wearying trip Roosevelt made at that point in his life. Of course, he would go on and become president of the United States. But that story captures, in a sense, something of a man on a mission, and accomplishing it against all odds, in the right way, with the right ethics. Many said he should have just executed the thieves out there in the wilderness where he found them. But no, he carried things out, what he thought was the best and wisest, most ethical way to do that. We come tonight in Isaiah to another one of the servant songs, another one of the servant portraits of the Messiah to come. And we come to this first, and our first point tonight is with an understanding of our deep need of a Redeemer. We come with verses 1 to 3, which describe this great need. And here the Lord is speaking to the nation and saying essentially, The coming of the suffering servant is prophesied in a setting of Judah and Israel's failure to seek God. In a context, their great sinfulness that brought the displeasure and the discipline of God upon them. Notice in verse, in verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or of which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Talking about the fact that Judah would go into exile. Here is Isaiah prophesying before the nation of Judah was exiled, but speaking to them as if they were already in exile. And talking about the sins of their parents, their forefathers, their mother in this sense, those who were in Jerusalem when the exile and the Babylonian captivity took place. And he's speaking about his treatment of them. As if it were divorce or as if it were that they were sold to creditors because of their bad debt and were sold into slavery because of it. And he says, why did this take place? Why this severe discipline that befell you? And it's answered, because of their iniquities for your transgressions. Verse 2, why when I came... Meaning, when I came, speaking through prophets, year upon year, time upon time, when I came speaking to you to repent, why was there no man? Why, when I called, speaking about the Lord calling them through his word, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? And then he speaks about, at his rebuke, he dried up the sea, referring to the Exodus, that God is a God of redemption. And the mighty power that he has to redeem. Jeremiah picks up this theme and expands on it, who would come after Isaiah, but still in the same context of the nation turning away from God. And in Jeremiah chapter 3, Jeremiah goes even into greater depth than this. He says, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? And then it talks about Israel's spiritual adultery seeking other gods. And then he goes on to say, But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah, the other nation, saw it. And he talks about that. Judah, and he goes on, likewise, did the same thing. And Judah did not return to me. And then finally in verse Eleven, Jeremiah says, And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has showed herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Essentially, he's saying both Israel and Judah were spiritually unfaithful to God. But there, Jeremiah is saying, Judah is even worse. And that same language of adultery and divorce is used in Jeremiah. And so, the context for this suffering servant is the powerful picture here of the problem of sin, a picture of spiritual adultery. And God brought his discipline upon the nation, and there would be restoration to the land. But in that very context, this fuller solution, this more deep and profound ultimate solution comes to light in verse 4. And so we turn to our next point, The true Redeemer would be one who fully identifies with our plight. And here we have a very beautiful servant song. It's almost like the suffering servant is on stage. And you've been seeing this play acted out, and there's these problems, and there's all kinds of failure and brokenness, which the nations of Israel and Judah carried out. And then you see stage right, a spotlight shows and shines down on this servant. And he stands up. He's going to be the solution. He's going to be the answer. And there's, as it were, a soliloquy. This suffering servant speaks. And that's what we have beginning at verse 4. The servant of the Lord. Someone distinct from Israel, but really the true and ultimate Israelite. And he says these words, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. And he goes on to speak. And here we have the character of this servant brought before us. Here we get a glimpse of who he is. And what is it that we find from this brief description and this brief monologue? We see three things here under this point. We see his communion with God in verses 4 and 5. Notice in verses 4 and 5, he says that the Lord has given him the tongue of those who are taught. He is a skilled counselor. He is able to help him who is weary because he himself has been taught by God. Look at the end of verse four. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turn not backward. He is a disciple of God before he is anything else. And as such, his outstanding characteristic is attentiveness to his God. And verse five says, he's not rebellious the exact opposite of the nations of Judah and Israel, the exact opposite, Jesus Christ, a life characterized by communion with the Father, a life characterized by obedience. Think of him at age 12, that famous incident that Luke records in the temple courts discussing with the spiritual and religious leaders at the time and his parents come back and find him there and they're so surprised, and he asked them, didn't they know that he had to be about his father's business? Already a self-identity and an awareness. And then at the baptism, after he's baptized, he's driven, he's moved by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. And in that time, praying and seeking God, and then in his earthly Ministry Again and again we see that no matter how pressed he is with people thronging him and wanting to be healed and wanting to be around him, him again and again finding time, getting up early before it is dawn to go out to have communion with his father in prayer. And then in the garden, again facing great temptation to turn away from the course that he knew he had to walk, Finding his strength in prayer to his God. A life of communion with God. And he himself, so taught by the Lord. And so he is the one who is supremely qualified to help us. Secondly, we see under this point his physical and mental suffering. Look at verse 6 I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. A startling prediction, so accurate and literally fulfilled in Jesus' suffering. Amazingly apt description. And then in verse 8, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. The language being described there. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. That is courtroom language. And it presupposes that the servant expects to be a victim of false accusation. It is as if he is in the courtroom and his adversaries are surrounding him, making accusations against him. And so there's this physical suffering. There's this mental suffering and opposition. And then we see also as well as we look at this text that this servant is strengthened by the assurance of final vindication from God. Look here in the midst of this description of suffering in verse 7, we find him say, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have sent my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Jesus Christ setting his face like a flint. How is he able to do that? In the face of such suffering, in the face of such opposition, in the face of such accusation and slander of sinful men against him, it is because he is strengthened by the assurance of vindication by his God. That, that language is here again and again. In verse 7, at the beginning of verse 8, he who vindicates me is near. At the beginning of verse 9, behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? The suffering servant is able to pursue his course of redemption for sinners. He's able to help the weary because he walks that path before them, but he does so in faith in his God with this strong certainty and assurance of vindication by his God. What a portrait! of the one who will be able to help the weary. No weary one will be able to say that the servant speaks from a vantage point of some kind of lofty and serene detachment, as if he's sitting up in the ivory tower somewhere, sipping on something good to drink. It's not like he's a Greek god who doesn't bother himself with the affairs of mere Mortals and they're up on Mount Olympus somewhere, just uh, not suffering at all. No, what a different picture. Far from it. No one has felt the struggle more intensely or paid a bigger price for obedience than this suffering one. Reminds me of a Charles Dickens novel, but even better, isn't it? It's like a David Copperfield or an Oliver Twist where the hero is raised in suffering and he goes through all these problems, he's mistreated by the schoolmaster. It seems like in every Dickens novel, the schoolmaster is really the bad guy. And he abuses the students in these terrible ways. And though finally the hero rises above that and makes his way in society and matures and becomes strong. Who better then when he is strong and mature to rescue some young boy in the same plight? as he was in, and that's how Dickens' novels tend to go. Jesus Christ far surpasses that. A man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief. We heard sung tonight these beautiful Christmas songs about Jesus coming in the flesh. Incredible reality, the incarnation. And then he comes and he does not break the bruised reed. He does not snuff out the smoldering wick. No, he knows us in all of our brokenness, and he knows us in all of our sin and rebellion, what the first part of Isaiah 50 is speaking about, and he has come to redeem us. Praise be to God. Well, what is the impact of this song of this servant on you and on me? Why this portrait in this particular place? Isaiah speaking 100 plus years before the exile would take place, and yet looking ahead by the Spirit of God and speaking to God's people in exile. What would it be like to be a people in exile? We looked at that some last week. Well, certainly it would be a wearisome thing. It would be a sense of weakness that you would have. It would be like walking in darkness, as verse 10 talks about. And maybe your life feels something like that now. And even if your life is outwardly fine right now and things are going well, when it comes to the problem of sin, don't all of us know the wearisome nature of the burden of our sins? Do you know the joy of forgiveness and new life that the resurrection, the resurrected, vindicated, suffering servant offers to all of those who will trust in him? What is to be the impact on you and on me? Verses 10 and 11 are descriptive of two diametrically opposed responses. Here's the suffering servant. He speaks You see a picture of him. The Gospels flesh all this out. It is Jesus Christ in power to save. Look at the two diametrically opposed responses. Verse 10 has the right response. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light, and that was their experience, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. There's the right response. When you feel like your life is in darkness, when it is wearying, when you feel the brokenness of your sin, fear the Lord and trust in the name of the Lord. Look to the suffering servant. And the wrong response in verse 11 is self-sufficiency. Look, look how it's described. Behold, all you who kindle a fire and equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire by the torches that you have kindled, Again, if you're in darkness, you can, in a sense, kindle your own fire. That's what is being described here. But the end of that is this, at the end of that verse, this you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. In other words, this is not the right response. The right response to the brokenness of our sin and our need in this life is not to kindle our own fire. That may be the answer that the world offers. Look within. Find it in yourself. But the answer of Scripture is no. Do not look within. Look to the suffering servant who came in the flesh, Jesus Christ. If you are weary, if you are sorrowful over your sin, look to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ knew what it was to be weary. His task was much greater, of course, than Teddy Roosevelt ever sought to do. He came to redeem a people from their sins. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the sinless one, Jesus Christ, and yet one who is able to sympathize with us in our need, in the weariness of this life, when there are days and weeks that we feel like we walk in darkness and have no light, thank you for the light of the world who came into this world full of grace and truth to redeem us from our sin. We trust in the name of the Lord alone and give glory to you through him. Amen.